Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 56, and I'm Roger Pang from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I'm here with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. We are a fortnightly data science podcast where we talk about things that are interesting to data scientists. Before we start the show, I just want to mention our Patreon page where you can support us in building and uh, producing not-so-standard deviations. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash nssdeviations uh, where you can support us at the $1, $2, and $3 per episode levels. The $1 per episode level kind of gives you some good feelings and good karma uh, and it helps us to create the show. Uh, the $2 per episode level gives you a special not-so-standard deviations hex sticker um, that and, and a custom note sent to you from Hit by Hillary. Uh, and the $3 per episode level gives you the sticker as well as access to some of our outtakes from each episode. If you'd like, you can please go to patreon.com slash nssdeviations to support us. On some of our episodes, we'd like to give a shout-out to our supporters on Patreon. Uh, and today, I'd like to give a shout-out to Steph De Silva and Ivan Baxter, who are supporting us on Patreon. So thanks to the two of them and to everyone else who has given, us, given their support uh, through the Patreon page. So uh, we have like just a—actually, one topic literally came in like as I was logging into to my computer this morning. So, um, Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's Elizabeth Holmes news. <laughs> oh wait what's that this is like this is long time follow-up for for our podcast uh, like probably going on like two like a year and a half now probably. which is so just a two-second background elizabeth holmes is or was i should say the ceo of a company called theranos which is a diagnostic testing company which claimed to have built a machine that could diagnose like hundreds of diseases using just like a tiny drop of blood that's the two-second summary of that. And uh, it turned out that the whole company was a fraud and they couldn't actually do anything that they claimed they did. And um, just this morning, uh, good listener uh, John sent in uh, not an article, <laughs> but a press release from the Securities Enforcement Commission, sorry, sorry Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, saying that they had uh, charged... Elizabeth Holmes and uh, former president Sonny Balwani uh, for massive fraud um, and for defrauding investors. And apparently, the long story is that they settled um, and Elizabeth Holmes paid a $500,000 penalty. Uh, she gave back basically almost all her shares in the company. So she no longer has control of the company um, and, and will likely not get any money if um, the company is ever sold. So... Um, so anyway, she's basically lost everything, <laughs> yeah, uh, for defrauding investors. Wow, so you know, it's like it really is a testament to how long it's been. Because when you said Elizabeth Holmes, I, I didn't actually know who you're talking about for yes. a second. <laughs> this is like super long term follow up for like dedicated listeners of the show who've been listening since like I don't know, episode 10, maybe, <laughs> right? Yeah, it was, it was a multi episode. <laughs> discussion yeah, it was yeah <laughs> yeah and also i was remembering i was thinking about this in terms of like yeah like podcast listeners really stick through it with you because at first i was like i don't think she probably did anything wrong like <laughs> i can't remember how i was saying it exactly but well, i was i was cautious to judge <laughs> i think when the first reports came out it was hard to tell you know i think uh, and also because, like, I think the reason why we talked about it on the show is because there was a lot of, like, statistics involved. Um, and so, the, which made it, I think, 
more complicated for the average person. So um, in terms of, you know, this, the general notion of diagnostic testing and, and how much and like sensitivity and specificity and that kind of stuff. So um, I think that's what it made it interesting to me. Um, but this is just the uh, final nail in the coffin, I think, for the company. Yeah, I would say... I would say any defense I had of her, <laughs> like, the evidence has just mounted since the beginning. And we won't be seeing her for a little while because she's barred from running a, I think she, what is this? She's barred from running a company for like 10 years, I think. Yeah, that's aggressive. <laughs> uh, well, serving as an officer or a director of a public company for 10 years, so only public companies but um i was it did we discuss on this show there was a long interview with um i think it was the grandson of one of the funders or someone on the board who kind of blew the whistle on the whole thing that's right yeah so the original articles that came out in the wall street journal did not cite a named source on the record it is uh but then much later on they published an interview with this guy i can't remember his first name but he's the grandson of george schultz um who was on the board of directors so not an investor although maybe a small investor but um he was on the board of the directors and the grandson and he got his grandson a job at this company as kind of like a you know kind of like a favor basically um and then his grandson ended up kind of taking the whole thing down. So um, <laughs> maybe a little ironic. And the Schultz guy was quite a bit older, like in his mid-90s. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he's like, he was the Secretary of State under Reagan. So um, not a young guy even then. So mm -hmm. Yeah, no, the whole story was very interesting and bizarre. Um, <laughs> One thing that the SEC release actually revealed to me it was like the original board of directors for this company was like all military and um, kind of defense related people, like former generals and you know those kinds of things. And I was I, I couldn't never could figure out like why that was. And I guess they the one of the I guess the original plan for the company was to sell the technology to the defense department so that they could use it as like kind of like a rapid diagnosis system. Uh, for you know, out in the battlefield and things like that. Um, wow. And so, yeah. and apparently, I, I, that's what they told investors. And apparently, it never happened. They never actually sold anything to the Defense Department. Um, and so, um, that was part of the fraud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this whole thing has been, you know, the thing that was, I, I mean, you know, PR plays such a big part in getting a company off the ground. And I can understand. It, I, it was just such a strange experience because I first came across Elizabeth Holmes in some sort of magazine and like she had like this whole founder aura, you know, they, they definitely did a good job with their PR around her where definitely. it was like, yeah. oh, she came, she like left college at 19 to found this company and she was wearing the black turtleneck and like, yeah, I thought it was so cool and I think I, I probably, if I look back, I have tweets that are like, this is so inspiring. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, like white collar crime is not out of your. <laughs> you could do it too. <laughs> you can do it too. Yeah. Don't let, there's no glass ceiling. So yeah. white collar crime. What, well, just stepping back one, just one step, maybe. I mean, there, it is interesting to think that, you know, that a lot of these, a lot of times you have these PR kind of bits about like technology founders and how amazing they are and how they're iconoclasts or whatever. And, um, and they're going to like disrupt the world. And I find that like, I can't, 
I'm trying to think of an example in which that has happened in the uh, kind of biomedical space or the life sciences mm-hmm. area. Um, right. Like, I can't think of a real story like, oh, so-and-so is the Steve Jobs or, or is the, you know, Mark Zuckerberg of the life sciences. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. No, it's a good point. I think it's because yeah. it's hard. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, just, it's really hard. Um, yeah. So the closest thing I can think of right now, I mean, I, I will say um, it was kind of like smaller potatoes, but in New York, I remember, I mean, I've come across founders of health kind of health tech companies who are definitely using their personal brand or, you know, the PR around them personally to advance the company, but never to the scale of this um, at all. Right. And then, I mean, part of where part of where my mind immediately went is that there's this um, health startup. But again, this is I, this like less, less life sciences. Although it's in the same it's in the same part category, which is um, a health startup in it's in San Francisco and I think New York. There's like two branches. It's called Forward. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. So it's like a super fancy doctor doctor's office where um you pay 150 dollars a month um and you get like the full boutique experience um and so what that includes is i mean i've only looked at like their website i haven't like taken a tour although one of the labs is just like one of the offices is across the street from where i work um but it's essentially they say they have these like big high-tech rooms with like computer screens and you can you know play like a futuristic patient where your records are going across the screen and whatever. Um, and then you also, there's an app and, you know, you check in with your doctor all the time and they have ways of measuring your, like, I mean, you, you can like add your Fitbit to it and they get that information real time. And then they have all sorts of like devices that they've apparently developed, which I was like, really? I, so it's kind of along the same idea as like, personal biomedical data devices measuring i don't even know what (laughs) like measuring things for you um and so it's supposed to be this like very concierge like having a super attentive doctor who's always collecting data on you um and it did definitely it it was it's one of the interesting things kind of to your point of like the board of directors being strange is that on the website they advertise how two of their funders are um the ceo of salesforce um oh my gosh what's his name mark bennyhoff yeah and then um the one of the google guys i don't remember which one (laughs) (laughs) but it's like this total like we want to live forever tech thing um well, so, I, I could see. Yeah. So, I, I think I'd see there being like a disruption, so to speak, in uh, in the kind of general notion of like healthcare delivery. Um, and I think I can see how these like CEO types would be interested in a company like this because if it were successful, they would want to offer it, you know, to their employees, perhaps, you know, as a benefit. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I guess I'm a little more cynical. I mean, isn't this a thing that I feel like I've just heard this casually mentioned where there's there's kind of like a lot of brain power trying to go into extending lifetime, um, yes. which would really only be accessible to the super rich. 
Um, and so this feels so in line with that, where they're like, we're going to like do all these tests, like cancer screening every month and looking for, you know, slightly unusual blood measurements and whatever. Like it's very much about the, you know, prevention acts like aspect, which is obviously, it's obviously good, but it's also not sophisticated enough where that is necessarily going to help you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a theme though. I mean, I think if you look at a lot of these, uh, the the people who are kind of interested in this topic, uh, especially like the Google founders, you know, like you look at how their companies are structured, you know, even though they're public companies, uh, they they will always be in control. Like control can never be taken away from them. Um, because of the way the stock is structured. I think it's just part of that theme, you know, like I, I will be here forever, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like uh, I own this, I control this and I literally never want to stop working. <laughs> right. I'll control this and I will extend my life so I can control it longer. Yeah. I, yeah, I was, I mean, it's like, that's the thing. I actually was sort of intrigued by this forward thing at first. And then it was like, as the more I thought about it, the more I started to get a little mad about it. <laughs> like it felt like they're in us 2.0, you know? <laughs> and um, I mean, not just that, but yeah, exactly. Like false expectations of the consumers about what would actually be possible. Like you can't create some brand new, like, oh, this will take this measurement and we develop this and it's going to perfectly detect if you have cancer or not. Like that's just not real right um Although, and I, so I, therefore if they have that it's probably like vanity metrics you're going after yeah i think there is i would draw a line between saying that we're going to improve like the healthcare experience uh and and rather than saying we are going to improve your health right you know what i, <laughs> I think the, the the former i think is actually quite important and and could have an impact on your health but i don't know but i think the latter actually improving your health is like hard to prove um, right. And I think, yeah. um, I, going back to my original thought of terms, of like, are there any like kind of iconic founders in the life science area? The only person I could think of that came to mind, um, was Ann Wojcicki, you know, who, uh, who founded 23andMe. Um, and yeah. she doesn't, and she doesn't have nearly the kind of PR that like Elizabeth Holmes did. I mean, not even close. Right. Um, oh, yeah. so, yeah. well, wait, what about the guy who did the human genome project, like the competitor to the human genome project? Oh, Craig Venter. Yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah. I, I guess he was so far, he was so long ago that I kind of forgot. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> no, he definitely he had out, quite yeah. the personality. Yeah, he has quite the ego, yeah. And uh, and his co- original company, Solera Genomics, I think did have that kind of, like, we're going to cure all the diseases uh, rhetoric, I think. So. Yeah. No, and he probably got a fair amount of press back oh, in. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. The early aughts. Yeah. <laughs> He was the maverick of his day. Yeah, so it happens. I mean, this is not to say that there aren't huge egos in medicine because there definitely are. <laughs> well, I mean, I just, but I think I just, it, it, I find it curious that the life sciences is just a tough nut to crack. I think for the tech uh, industry, you know, right? Um, yeah. Well, no, it's it's. I like your framing of improving the healthcare experience versus inc- improving health outcomes. Um, and it's it's interesting because yeah, I think probably if you read all of the stuff on the forward website carefully, they probably are very careful to only talk about healthcare experiences. Um, 
but the overall gist you walk away with is improving healthcare. Period. Right. Yeah. They probably, you know, they don't they don't mind that it's a little ambiguous. Probably. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 No. That's yeah. It's that's an interesting. It's. I mean, like you've said all along, it's interesting to have that kind of uh, interplay between regulation, like a regulatory industry, and then. Um, or a regulatory body, I guess, and like the tech ethos of wanting to disrupt everything. Right. Yeah. But the other thing, part of the reason I heard about this forward thing was because um, it was featured in Wired and they did, they took the angle that it was really about the data collection, data curation of healthcare records, which is a super hard problem that, people should solve. And the way that forward is solving it is having someone hand enter all of your past records into your file into like their own probably proprietary file format or whatever. Right, right. Uh, which which will which no one will ever be able to read. So it'll be stuck there just like every other health record. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, totally. I was I was thinking about that. I was like, could I sign up for a little while so that they collect all my health records and then leave? but take my health records with me. No, that's not how the system works. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um it is frustrating. I mean, who has all their health records from when they're like a little kid or I know, yeah. 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 But... All right, do you want to move on to the next bit of follow up? Let's do it. Uh we have a follow up about Catholic priest training. Right. Yes. So, last episode you asked me how what was the training for Catholic priests and I said I had no friggin idea (laughs) (laughs) um but eric h on uh twitter tells us that uh catholic priests go to you know i don't know who this guy is but i'm assuming he knows what he's talking about because he kind of sounds like it so um catholic priests go to uh minor seminary for a ba and then major seminary for a master's in divinity i think um so roughly eight years of training no monastery required but there are seminaries in monasteries. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, yeah, so not a small amount of training. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's pretty... It's like getting an MD. Yeah, not unlike that. So um, I think that... I don't think there's anything more to say about that, but <laughs> I just want to close that loop. Someone else followed up about um, Catholic priests in the Senate or like in Congress. Oh, um, it was the same guy, what, yeah. That looks up. Yeah, yeah. And so what was the story there? That there are priests in Congress and they lead. And I guess he said that the Congress opens every day with a prayer of some sort. Um, Really? Yeah, he says, oh, yeah, U.S. House and Senate have chaplains. Uh, House is a Jesuit priest. Senate is a Seventh-day Adventist minister. They open the proceedings each day with prayer, presumably also minister to members when needed. (laughs) That is so bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) I even went to Jesuit school. Like I like the Jesuits somewhat. <laughs> so it's like, but it's yeah, that, that seems a little bit uh blurry line there in terms of church and state. Probably, yeah. I'm no constitutional lawyer, but uh Yeah. I know I know with um various program like for example, um my boyfriend leads meditation in prisons. And so, but I think, I think his time slot is like a rotating time slot with any religious leader. So sometimes people come in and leave like mass or, you know, there's various things that go on that are all, you know, quote unquote religious. So 
Yeah. That is a version of church and state, but at least it's lots of churches. <laughs> Whereas if you have the same person leading prayer, that is one church. <laughs> it's a far cry from having a national religion. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 All right. Anyway, well, that's that's so far afield from what. <laughs> There's no data science angle there as far as I can tell. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, I have at least one fan of my project to build old versions of R. Can I give you a little follow-up of this? Sure, yeah. So Scott Scott came on uh, Twitter, says, you have at least one loyal uh, NSSD listener who agrees it would be cool to build slash curate old versions of R. Have you thought about using Docker for this? Um, Anyway, so it's just, you know, it's just the two of us, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Because, yeah, everyone else heard the episode and didn't send that tweet. Exactly, so. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so you got, I feel like you made progress. You had a tweet with a photo. I, I've made significant progress, actually. I'm, I'm, I've, I've been able to build R back to 1.4. Um, wow. And be, be, earlier than this, like, so the way I've done this is perhaps a little impure because it's not like I just take pull the code out and just compile it I actually have to like edit the code a little bit to make get it to compile um so not not in any major way like like certain things are like not allowed you know anymore and but they were allowed back then and so like I have to make slight changes to the code in order to get it to compile but um Mm -hmm. but it's still like r it still runs as far as I can tell it probably it may give you slightly different answers but (laughs) right have you tried yeah, have you tried doing analysis in these R instances or just getting them to start? No, I just got them to start. <laughs> yeah. Did you run at least like X equals R norm of 100 hist of X? No, I, I actually haven't <laughs> run any code, but I, I probably should. <laughs> no, well, so part- yeah, you would think that that might be step one. I Actually, I'm not even sure I can u- use any code. I can do any graphics. So first of all, I'm doing this on like a DigitalOcean Linux insta- installation because I don't have Linux on my computer, uh, and it and it builds better on Linux. Um, and so, and furthermore, I don't build the I don't build I'm not building the graphics system the the X Windows kind of graphics system, and so I can't like make any plots. I could probably export them to like PDFs and stuff like that, but uh, I can't actually make any plots in the window. Yeah, that's always a pain. Um. <laughs> well. I you can make PDFs. I feel like you should do. I mean, do like X gets R norm of a hundred, and then mean of X or <laughs> min of X okay. or something. See, see if it ends up being like forty three or something like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like just see see if it works literally at all, or if you just got the intro message to show correctly. <laughs> one thing I was thinking that like if I could get it down to like R one point or somewhere thereabouts, right? I was thinking I would try, it would be interesting to do the same exact analysis using like R version 1.0 and like R version 3.4 or whatever you know, the current version is yeah. and do it mm-hmm. the, do the exact same analysis but whatever code was available back then and like whatever code is available now and see how it was yeah. different. Yeah. Um, no, that would be fascinating to see you know with all of this, you know, iterations, updates, you know, these small statistical errors that we find and you know, update our packages to correct for if that actually makes a difference or not. <laughs> <laughs> one one fun fact actually I discovered is that you cannot in, even theoretically install the tidyverse before version R one point nine. I think 
Really? Because before R1.9, you couldn't have underscores in a name. Um, oh, <laughs> I did not realize that. Yes. That's pretty. That's pretty big. So I did think about like, well, well, I could maybe try to. It's, so one of my other goals is to try to install the Tidyverse on R version 1.0. <laughs> so you're just gonna custom. I would have to remap replace. all the names. Yeah. To all the names. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like something you would do. <laughs> I'm just saying the project has sprawled a little bit, you know. I thought I can't believe that you could spin up our version 1.4 and have a little cursor blinking at you and not just try to do something. Yeah, I just I think I was just like I was so more obsessed with like how early could I go. So once I got one to like compile and run, I was like I just like quit it and then move and move back one version. And so See, this is just this just shows to me that it was always about the like computer software engineering part (laughs) (laughs) and not about not about the you know analysis part well i'm getting there i'm trying to yeah i'm trying to figure out where the boundaries are here right (laughs) it just seems like that would be so exciting you know to see it work (laughs) well as far as i can i mean i don't i think if it boots i mean if it loads up it probably works (laughs) Okay, yeah, I shouldn't yeah. say that. That's that's totally wrong, actually. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you have something new to do or to not do if you want to just keep focusing on what you haven't yet gotten to in terms of R 1.0. I think I the I may have hit a brick wall, though, because like the error messages that I'm getting now for like R 1.3, uh, I don't really know how to fix. So I, I may have mm. reached the limit. So, But we'll see. I can understand that because... It's not even if you do this whole thing where you're like rerunning an analysis in R version 1.4 versus the current R version, it's never going to be as satisfying if you don't have R 1.0. I know, I know, because I I know exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to feel the same. That's not really. That's not like the takeaway headline you want. Like, you just want it to be the first version of R versus the current version. Not like an early version, asterisk, blah de blah. <laughs> Although I am, in terms of the timeline, I'm actually back to like 2001 already. Um, wow. Yeah. So, which is kind of, it's kind of nuts if you think about it. <laughs> when did you start using R? Uh, 1998. Okay. So, so you haven't yet, that's probably the other thing is you haven't yet gone back to your original right so, yeah which i'm not personally, sure personally it's not satisfying yeah yeah, yeah. exactly so anyway that's the update the, the new the new long-term follow-up is going to be about old versions of r <laughs> yeah no at this point the only elizabeth holmes news is going to be like sad personal stories <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> like gossip column stuff right. so i don't think there's any future follow-up on that company Unless someone like gets the old machines and is like, oh, actually, there's just a piece of dust in the laser and it actually works perfectly. That would be, that would be amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the whole thing's such a shame. Like I did like the idea of their product. So sad times. Alas. Do you want to get to a real question? Sure. Um, so on Twitter, Florian Koish 
uh, asks, do you guys have a core set of programming rules slash standards that you follow or would recommend? Thinking about uh, quote-unquote programming hygiene, uh, uh, we are looking for guidelines to be used across our courses that we offer in their program, uh, mm-hmm. which is in survey science. Mm-hmm. Um, well, do I ever. <laughs> how would you describe your core programming standards or rules? Um, well, I, I feel like this is my opinionated analysis stuff. Um, if, I mean, if we're in the world of surveys, I assume we're talking about survey analysis, right? I think this is a survey design uh, course. Oh, survey. Well, no, but so when they talk about key programming, are they talking about like programming up the surveys or are they talking about programming the analysis of the surveys? I think they're talking about like programming the analyses or even just like programming more generally. So like, you know, I, I thought the question was more about like, you know how like Google has like coding standards for R, you know, uh, that mm-hmm. a lot of people cite and uh, I disagree with, but. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, <laughs> well, not all of it, but anyway, I thought that, you know, like some, yeah. a lot of companies have like standards that like everyone's got to like write using these conventions, for example. I, th- I think that's, ca- mm-hmm. I thought that was, that's how I, how I interpreted the question. No, totally. Yeah. No, I still I still think this is then the opinionated analysis development stuff where there is I you know, I had that list of here's the different things that you should probably be doing when you do an analysis, um, which include like, I mean, the biggest ones are having the reproducible executable script um, so that you can, you know, not doing things drag and drop in Excel or whatever. Um, and the idea there, like the framing, the framing of all that is but like in an ideal world, the way you communicate this to people is saying like, here's the sorts of errors you're going to avoid. So avoiding errors, like having, um, new data come in and you can't update your analysis easily. You have to redo a bunch of steps. Um, and so I think the other ones, so it was like, uh, having functions for things like anytime that you have repeated logic in your code, wrap it into a function so that you can change it just once uh, rather than having to remember to change it in a bunch of different places. Um, And then having some sort of system for understanding if, if and when your data are updated um, and then knowing whether or not your analysis has been updated along like with the new data or not um so it's almost like a data versioning problem which feels like that would be especially important for surveys yeah yeah um and then using code review that's one that often gets overlooked a lot so making sure that someone's looking over your code um, and you can even get really direct about this is just for the purpose of evaluating the coding choices i've made um, and we'll separate that from the like discussion of the methods, which is equally valid, but you know, separating those two will make life easier <laughs> make the discussion more direct. Right. Um, and then what, what else is there? There was like, um, using version control, um, so that you like the errors you would avoid there are having, um, you know, not knowing what changes produced a new graph or, you know, needing to roll back some changes, being able to do that easily. Um, and then there's a few other collaborative ones, like wanting to, uh, 
use some version of itch issue tracking and that can be as simple as like a you know a document that you update or you could use the issue tracking in github or some similar product um to make sure that to make sure that people are aware of what you're working on what you've already addressed and what you haven't addressed yet um and that's that's mostly like a ease of ease of collaboration and that avoids the errors of like people not being able to collaborate or not being able to tell you what they need and you not being able to tell them what you've done and just ease of communication. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was my super quick. Oh, oh, the last one that I actually feel like that I feel like it's under discussed in the data science world is that um, in an ideal world, you should include some version of data, quote unquote, unit testing. So testing some of the assumptions that are in your models. So, you know, if your if your method assumes you have a normal distribution, maybe you throw in some sort of test for normality, or even just a graph like one of those Q norm graphs uh, that you can visually inspect. Um, and the idea here is that if your data change and you have this reproducible script, you know, you followed like that first principle of reproducibility, you might not notice subtle shifts in your data that invalidate the methods that you're using or some of the assumptions you have with the data. And so programming those in, even you can even have like, you know, in true unit test land, you would have failures. So like if you don't pass the test, then you just put a big like failed <laughs> as the report instead of the actual report. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of my like dry run through of all the different things. I have um, a paper on this and also videos of me giving what I hope is an entertaining talk on the topic. <laughs> I'll definitely put a link to your paper, which is now it's on the, where is it? Somewhere, right? It's, I'm thinking it's on Peer It's Day. on Archive. Oh, it's yeah. on your Archive. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'll put a link in yeah. the show notes so people can yeah. look at it. It's I mean, do you have like what, what sorts of advice? Is that what you were thinking with this question or did your mind go in a different direction? My so my mind went in a totally not a totally I I interpreted the question as like when you're programming in R do you have a set of standards so that's kind of how I interpret yeah it. whereas I think what mm -hmm. you're talking about is is, a, is maybe like one level higher a little bit more abstract um, mm -hmm. and I think um, they're not like mutually exclusive I just think that um, y your discussion is perhaps more useful because it kind of avoids this explicit discussion of tools um, mm -hmm. but. Um, so I don't know exactly what he's asking <laughs> for. <laughs> but, right. Um, yeah, that would be my general advice for just, you know, how to do data analysis. And you could achieve that with any number of tools. And the reason I like ours, it makes it pretty easy to do most of them, although not all of them. Um, but yeah, you can you can pro you can program in Stata or like whatever language you're using. Um, but yeah, in R, <laughs> Roger, what are your programming advice or principles? <laughs> well, I mean, I think there, there is overlap. Obviously, the, the kind of like questions about design in terms of like when to use functions and when to use packages uh, and things, when to write a package or when to write a function. I think I those I agree with you there. And then the other stuff is more deep, nitty gritty stuff in terms of like how to format code and, and how to, you know, import, most importantly, how to indent it. So uh, I was about to say you're an eight space indenter, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, for almost uh, twenty years now. So um, yeah, 
old school. <laughs> I was just changing the default in our studio. Yeah. I was like, should I do eight just to try it out? See what it's like. I would never impose my will on anyone else. <laughs> but what sorts of like, I mean, yeah, that's, it's interesting. Cause I can't, I guess aside from, I mean, so aside from like the principles of, you know, here's one to indent and here's one to write a function. I mean, I do think we should be teaching and here's how to go about thinking about manipulating data. It's just my opinions on that are basically use the tidyverse quote unquote workflow, um, which is to say that coerce your data into a tidy data frame where one row is one observation or one outcome. Um, and then and then you'll plug into that tool tool set really nicely. And so you kind of front load the work and then all of the analysis flows really naturally from that data type or like data frame type or you know the structured data. And so and that that's been hugely helpful for me and my work just because you can coerce many problems into that. I mean, really, it's pretty rare for me to run into something I can't eventually make a tidy workflow. Um, and so it allows you to translate something from, you know, scenario A to scenario B quite easily. Um, and so you can, it, it's a fairly universal language is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I, I, I like stopped short of saying that you have to do that. Um, but that would definitely, if I were running like, you know, a lab <laughs> and I was trying to teach people how to program, I would definitely be teaching them, okay, like, you know, gather your data so that it's in the tidy format and, you know, follow this general pattern. And, you know, I, I tell people at Stitch Fix to like use the map function, like, use the math function to apply a function to a data frame and nest the data. You know, I, I have various advice that I give people that's fairly boilerplate in terms of tidy workflow. Um, so yeah, those are my general ramblings on this topic. Well, I think, you know, if you, if someone came to you and said, Hey, what should I do? And I'm not going to tell you anything about what I do. <laughs> then I think like the tidy, the tidy workflow is a pretty solid kind of generic bit of advice. Uh, it's probably going to work for like, most situations given that you don't know anything about what they're doing um uh, but of course i think there's there's probably a number of scenarios where someone says well i'm doing this very specific thing and it involves this this and that uh, and then the advice you would give i think you know might differ it might not but it might um it becomes bespoke <laughs> where you have to give yeah like work uh workflow specific or like application specific advice that's hard to generalize by definition right yeah which is um yeah uh, i think you know i think it's one of the it's the, it's the conundrum of data analysis in general is that how do you take lessons from analyzing genomics data and apply them to analyzing you know clinical trials data or whatever um it's not always clear that you can um but um that's kind of like the generic data analysis problem i think yeah, no, totally. I think David Robinson has a blog post on this talking about tidy analysis of, you know, he went into, he did his PhD in, um, I don't want to say genomics, but essentially genomics. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what it was, but 
something very similar to genomics where he was um he was analyzing genome data regularly um definitely expression data possibly sequence data but regardless he was showing how like oh you know like here's like one philosophy of how to analyze this and here's kind of the tidyverse philosophy and like this is such an like this is the whole point of the tidyverse is that it's an interchangeable system so you can use this on UN data or you can use it on genomic data. It doesn't really make a difference. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think the issue, the, the issue that I'm talking about is like, you know, if you're like, what's a classical analysis in, let's say with microarray data, uh, mm -hmm. it would be, you know, you know, it would be, it would involve, okay, I'm going to make this up. I think I know this. So you, you'd have to do some sort of uh, like, uh, kind of correction for measurement, or I can't remember, RMA or something like that. Some some sort of correction yeah, for like, yeah. you know, measurement noise, or whatever. And then you do like a, a like a linear model type of thing, um, mm -hmm. relating expression to something, right? Um, right. And then that, but that like process doesn't necessarily translate to really anything, <laughs> you know? Right. Um. I, I, you know, I mean, well... except for the very abstract notion of doing regression, right? Um, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, depending on, I mean, this is why you see so many people who are creating like, like tidy quant or tidy, um, there's some like tidy graph, like there's that, which is itself, um, just a wrapper. I mean, not just, but it is a wrapper for iGraph. So iGraph was a package, um, is a package in R for analyzing network data. And then TidyGraph was a wrap around that so that it like fit the tidyverse and used um, logic consistent with the tidyverse. And I think the author, um, Thomas Pedersen, is that his last name? I mean, I don't know how to say, I don't know how to pronounce it, but. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, like he, he introduced a new verb uh, that was kind of appropriate for um, network analysis context and um, and talked about like the design decisions around the verb and where to put it and how to approach it to make it feel tidy-esque. Um, so, I mean, so anyway, yeah, the RMA function, I have not used it recently, but I, I doubt it plugs into the tidyverse as is, um, but you could probably do some light wrapping around it to make it work. Um, no, I mean, I think the point is that even if it did, you would have no need for it if you're doing like, you know, stock market data, <laughs> you know? So like, for yeah, example, you yeah. can analyze stock market data using the tidyverse, right? Right. Um, yeah. But but your experience analyzing genomics data is only kind of tangentially relevant, I think, um, except for the fact that you might use like regression models, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the general concept of pre-processing data, having like a raw data input and then needing to pre-process it and like understanding that there's variance that's not due to the key process that you care about. Like in financial data, that's easy because it's recorded per like quote unquote perfectly. I assume that there's not much variance in the way that they record stock prices, for example. Um, I have no idea, but <laughs> yeah, I actually have no idea either, but so many people look at that data. That would be fascinating to hear about the engineering world of like recording stock prices accurately in the stock market. I bet there's some very highly paid data engineers like <laughs> doing that. 
Oh, okay, but, but I don't disagree yeah. that, yes, in both cases, you need to pre-process data, right? And so, like, the generic notion of pre-processing is, I agree, it's generic. But, like, that's not helpful. Like, of course, everyone's got to pre-process data, but that doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? So, like, if there were a pre-processed verb in the tidyverse, like, it's not like I could use the same function on genomics data and financial data, right? Um, well, no, but there's the tidy package, right? Tidier? where you it's like the group of the suite of functions for coercing your data into a tidy data frame uh, you know i agree and and the point is that the se the sequence of operations which might be long or short who knows that you'd have to do in with financial data would be would would likely be different than the sequence of operations that you'd use in genomics data it'd be different from the sequence of operations you'd have to use for environmental data uh, and, and etc right like and you would have to know how to do that, right? And the only way that you can know how to do that is to have some, like, experience with the data and understand what the problems are. Um, right. Because, yeah, you, like, the sequence of filters, mutates, and splits, and whatever uh, that you're going to use on financial data only makes sense because it's, like, financial data, right? Um, so that, that's, that's kind of what I mean. Like, I don't, I'm not saying you can't use the tidyverse in those two settings. I'm just saying, it's just like, you, it's like saying you can't use R in those two settings. Of course you can use R in those two settings, but the sequence of, but how you use it or what you do is going to be very different, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I tend to agree. I, I guess, like, I mean, yeah, of course I agree, but I think... I mean, yeah, at some point, if, if what you were saying wasn't true, then you could just have like a generic button for like, make this data good, and it would just work. Which is the dream, <laughs> like, by the way. It's not like you laugh yeah, at that, that's the dream. but that is the dream. Yeah. And many people have invested millions of dollars into that dream. Right, right. Yeah, those people are just crazy. No. <laughs> are they though? <laughs> yeah. I, yes. <laughs> Well, this is where we were talking about like the role of expertise in, um, I, I mean, surveys are such of a good example of this. Like what is the role of expertise in data analysis In surveys? It's probably one of the higher ones because there's so much bias in terms of how you ask questions, what order you ask them in the number of response options. Like you can't just take survey numbers wholesale at all. Um, and so like, uh, yeah, there would be no per like like survey methodology. Like at least we're at the point where people can generally measure and discuss these things. Like there would be no possible way of being like, oh, and just do all this stuff in genomics, and the data will be good by the end of it, because the sources of bias are like totally different. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. But then, are you saying that, or like more like the format of the data? I think I'm I'm still confused which of the many valid points you're making. <laughs> <laughs> I think the point I was making was what you just said. Like I, I like I think like like you the like to take so you if you spend your lifetime analyzing surveys, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then someone throws a genomic data set in front of you. Like mm -hmm. are you going to know what to do? And chances are no, I think. I mean, except at a very abstract level, right? You'll have a, a concept of what might need to be done, but you're not actually going to know what to do. Like if someone put, I mean, I've been doing this, I've been analyzing data, quote unquote, for a long time now. If you threw a genomic data set in front of me, I would not have the foggiest idea what to do. And I'm familiar with the tidyverse. I'm familiar with all kinds of tools, right? Um, right. Yeah. And um, if yeah. you told me what to do, 
I could do it very quickly, but I would not actually know what to do, right? And uh, I mean, you would have a better sense than I would, right? So, <laughs> no, hopefully, geez. <laughs> Um, no, no, but I think, but I, I actually contest that you wouldn't know what to do. I mean, surely you've tried this, right? Like you've been in biostat too long to not have like taken a stab once. I mean, I've seen the data, right? I mean, I've had it in front of me, but yeah. only just to kind of play around with and not really to address any sort of it, real question, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah. But uh, if someone gave you the general, like how much expertise would you need to acquire in order to analyze the data? Again, with the caveat in terms of my context that I think you need a ton of expertise in order to produce valid analyses as discussed. But that said, could you go through the motions in a way to get you 50% of the way there? I think if someone told you like, what are you looking for? What are the responses? What are common sources of bias? Like you would, you'd probably come up with something that's like fairly cogent, but I guess this is what you're saying. Like it, you probably come up with like a linear model or some sort of clustering, you know, model and that would probably be the right approach, but that's so simple as to not be helpful advice for anyone. Well, I mean, I think if someone said we need to know like which genes are associated with the presence of this disease in people, right? And we have, my understanding is that the data is like, you know, we have all these samples on different people and we have like thousands of, you know, genes that we've measured uh, and some are overexpressed or whatever, you know. <laughs> Wow, this is getting really mm -hmm. <laughs> beyond me. Anyway, <laughs> if someone said we need to know like what, what's related to the outcome, like I think I, I would have a sense of what to do, and like nine times, chances are pretty good I would I would produce a result, <laughs> right? Like I could definitely produce a result. That's no question about that, right? Right, um, right? And I think the chances are also pretty good that the result would be like incorrect, right? And so yes. Um, and, and, and not, we've seen people who know way more than I do, do that exact same thing. Right. Um, yeah. and publish it in the peer reviewed literature. So it's not like it's that big of a deal to like actually manipulate the data. I think, you know, um, mm -hmm. if assuming someone told me like, you know, kind of what to do, um, and I had, or I had some sense of like what was appropriate, but I think it's, you know, there's a lot, obviously like, I don't know, we're not even arguing. Like, I think, you know, like yeah. I think you and I both agree that there's like a lot more to it than that. And so, um, right. and I think the lessons learned, if I were to learn all those things, the lessons learned, there are some kind of generic lessons to understand about like confounding, you know, batch effects or, um, measurement error mm -hmm. and things like that, um, that you could say walk away with and apply to a different setting, um, but there are a lot of things that I think you would learn in this setting that would just be unique, right? Um, yeah. So I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I maybe what I'm thinking is that I think it's rare. It's exciting when it happens, but it's relatively rare that you can port one method, a method from one setting to another, where you're like, oh, this thing that we use for this application over here, we decided to try a similar approach in this totally unrelated field, and it was revolutionary. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, in that case, yeah. you've invented generalized linear models, basically. You know, it's like, that, that's the rare yeah, case, right. you know? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I do agree with that. And I, yeah, I, <laughs> as usual, we're agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but let me just bring it around. So I think the, the presence of the tidyverse, I think, 
does not does not in my opinion does not make that problem any easier um except that it allows you to kind of accelerate i think so if you move into a new area let's say finance whatever um and then someone says okay here's financial data let me tell you all the issues with it and here's what like you need to be worried about right then given Mm -hmm. that information right i think the presence of the tidyverse allows you to kind of like get up to speed a little bit faster than you normally or or a lot faster than you normally would i think um but the presence of the tidyverse does not allow you to get started at all i think if you don't know any of those really important kind of context i guess is what i would say yeah i i agree with that like the what i what i'm kind of preaching the tidyverse it's it's like my the key thing that i like to do is um, take my data, nest it via subgrouping variable, um, and then you know essentially map that data to a or map a fun- map the data to a function, and then create a like prediction from it, and then have that data frame unnest the predictions, and then look at them compared to the observed. You know, like that's my general workflow. Um, and the idea there is like the functions, the actual important part, right? Like, like what function are you using there? Uh, and that's not necessarily, I mean, that's like kind of the meat of the analysis part. Um, and where, where this gets me up to speed, quote unquote, is that usually when you enter a new field, the data format is perplexing at first. And so it's, it's really useful cognitively in at least for me to just always always frame the first part of my discussion around okay what what format should this data be in so that I can quickly do that trick I always do in order to like the convenience trick not the like modeling trick um, yeah in order to like get my results and make this comparison that usually is helpful for me um, yeah so that yeah yeah I know I see what you're saying like yeah. So again, this question that this person asked that we may or may not have answered over the course <laughs> of the last <laughs> 20 minutes or however long it's been the, um, yeah, like there's not going to be a coding principle. That's like, always do this method. Like there, in terms of methods principles, there's not going to be many aside from like the occasional snarky, like you can always use a linear model. <laughs> I feel like that blew up recently. Yeah. There, I think, uh, Sean Taylor have a tweet along those lines. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah, Sean Taylor had a tweet along the lines of, all, like, nothing's better than a linear model. And <laughs> kind of had to backtrack on it. But um, I totally understand what he was saying, though. Yeah. Like, I'd I, I, I say I think I've had the urge to write that tweet, and it just, I just never did it. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand the urge. I think that, yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, somewhere like Facebook and somewhere like Stitch Fix where we have kind of rich user data and like the ability to, in Stitch Fix's case, you know, there's real value to the clients to give us like data around, you know, what's your style and like what sorts of clothes do you want to receive? And so um, I think I think a, a, a new framing of Sean's tweet is that it's, it's usually more valuable to figure out the right question and do a linear model on it than to iterate on the model with the current set of data. Yeah. I think um, the funny thing about that, I totally agree, obviously. And uh, the funny thing Mm -hmm. about that statement that it seems like fairly, I think people like to say it. 
Um, yeah. But they don't like to do it. <laughs> oh my god! Like you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> uh, you, I mean, I know, I, I, I know that, but like, yeah. I thought that. I feel like that needs to be said, though. <laughs> Oh no! I, it definitely needs to be said. Yeah, it's I, I. It is shocking how hard that is. I mean, because it's you know, if you have like in many cases, you build your entire mental framework around a specific. Like, how often are people coming into statistics designing a totally new experiment from scratch, where they're like not biased by the tools that currently exist in the world to collect the data and they're not biased by their you know pi's preferred approach to problems so, you know, it is like that's like a really creative problem of like there's some fundamental truth with a capital t out there and what am i going to do to get it that's that's a that's a hard question <laughs> <laughs> you see what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. It's a lot easier to be like, okay, given these like X constraints, how do I like locally optimize? <laughs> right. How how do I get to the very top of this very small hill? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 No, that's exactly it. Yeah. So, uh, alas, we've gotten to the core yeah. of the problem now. <laughs> exactly. So, with the survey person, probably don't worry about the methods so much, and just worry about what questions you're asking. <laughs> But that is definitely but, the hardest part of this. Okay, I think the yeah. reason I bring this up is like because given that how many times people say it and then don't do it, I, I I understand what you're saying that like people come in with you know all kinds of biases and whatever and constraints, self-imposed constraints. And I think I I mean part of me wonders like maybe this is the wrong maybe it's like the wrong thing to say right like it's like one of those things where it's like yeah you can say it but it's not actually helpful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like oh you need to think make sure you've got the right question you know. Yeah, yeah. But then we had the example a, a few months ago of the person doing analysis of like um, murder data and trying to find serial killers. And that was like a profoundly unfun job of data collection. Right. <laughs> it's like calling up a bunch of people trying to figure out what, how police officers were recording things in that city. And um, it, yeah, it's a lot of work, so I can see why people don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to say. Yeah, I guess, and you can imagine an alternate universe in which uh, that person decided not to do all those things um, mm -hmm. and just took whatever was available and just kind of ran a model right? or ran a really complicated model. Right. It's, um, gosh, what was it? There was the, um, I mean, I feel like the Human Genome Project is kind of an example of this where... It was getting new data. It did have a lot of unlocks, but then you can't, I mean, so one of the biggest problems with collecting new data is that everyone wants to understand ahead of time what value the data is going to add. And it's like a massive chicken and egg problem where like you're not going to know. You have to like trust your gut on it, right? Um, right. And there's no question the Human Genome Project is was a worthwhile endeavor, but it also didn't necessarily deliver on everything that people were hoping it would. Right. Um, well, it's not yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Let so, me, can I follow up with one thing with you? Though, when mm -hmm. you say so, people want to know what value uh, the data collection is going to bring, basically, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But do they, so, I'm curious. Like, how do people define value in that case? 
Yeah. Well, which case are you talking about? Well, in I don't know. In any case, I guess. I mean, if you're going to set, I, I mean, I think if I were to think about like the scientific uh, setting that I'm usually in, um, usually mm-hmm. you don't have to. I mean, I think the, the the value there is knowing whether or not something is true or not, right? I, mean, I think, and regardless yeah, of whether right. it. So, if I assume that there's some relationship that exists out in the world, uh, I want to know whether that relationship truly exists or not, and and. In principle, of course, it's not reality, but in principle, I don't care whether the data comes back, you know, positive or negative or whatever. Like mm-hmm. the value comes in knowing is is in observing the reality, right? Yeah, um, it's like and, the noble academic, noble academic. Uh, I don't know. What's the right word for that? <laughs> I don't know. You're very noble. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean in, in my experience, most scientists do operate along, to, at least to a first order approximation, they do operate along those lines. Because, um, but uh, in the sense that, like, you know, if something doesn't work, you know, they just move on, right? Um, right. And I think. Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, isn't grant funding like the big elephant in the room? Like, can you get grant funding? Like, it, you have to publish results, results, journals usually publish positive results, not negative results. And so you do want to know that you're following a line of research that's going to produce something interesting. So you're not just seeking truth, you're seeking truth that's interesting, right? Well, ideally, yes, because <laughs> yeah. in a world of limited resources, uh, there needs to be some way to prioritize, obviously, what right. what to fund. Um, so. I, granted, you know, there's definitely uh, like uh, an interest in like producing something that is quote unquote interesting. But I, I, mm-hmm. I'm in practice, like you know, when you talk to scientists on the ground, um, mm-hmm. you know, on a day to day basis, like if something if something looks like it's not going to work, I most people will not go through extraordinary efforts uh, to like coerce it to work. You know what I mean? Like if, if the data looks like mm-hmm. it's not there, then they just move on to because they're usually working on 10 right. different projects anyway, you know, and so mm-hmm. if project number eight doesn't look like it's panning out, then you just kind of move on, right? I mean, you go to project right. seven through yeah. nine, you know, so um, it's um, so anyway, my, my point is that I, I'm kind of I wonder in, in your setting, you know, like it's a little bit it's a little bit different, I would assume, right? In terms of what is the nature of the value? Yeah, no, like people, people understand that, like when someone enrolls in a clinical trial, they understand they might get a placebo, they understand that the new treatment might not work. Like, there's kind of a a well understood social contract there. Um, Whereas when a proprietary company that you are paying money to collects new data on you, you want to know that it's going to help you, right? like you're not in this for the charity of like helping the company learn, you know. I mean, you might be like if you're if you're a super motivated customer, you might be in special beta testing groups, and you know you might have vested interest in the company. And I certainly have companies that I just like I like work through bugs with them because I just enjoy, you know, I like the company and I want to see them succeed and whatever. Um, but most people aren't like that. So yeah, the, the, there's a lot more pressure to know that data is going to result in a positive outcome, um, for the consumer in this setting. Okay. Or that it's free to collect and that, you know, like that the consumer doesn't realize they're giving it to you. Um, Yeah, which is kind of like click logs. I mean, I maybe I mean, people seem to understand that when you're clicking through a website, someone like has all that information. Um, 
But then there's levels to which people don't understand how much information they have given. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, I'm pretty sure that their website, like I, there are services that really do know a lot about you and then they can sell it to the various websites you're visiting, whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, and so the, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the additional constraint is that like collecting in the scientific setting, collecting new data, it's a question of getting grant money. Whereas in a consumer business, it's the question of like goodwill toward your company or trust in your company, you know? And I mean, I think a good example of that is Amazon where people aren't very trustful of giving their data over. Um, and so asking for more data is like, will stir up those feelings. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. so my question, I think, in terms of the other side, though, in terms of the business side, though, like, uh, you know, what, I, I, t- tell me if you could answer this. So, like, if you, what is the, what's the scenario where the business says, wow, we collected that data, and man, it was really worth it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like, there's going to be, I mean, to take like the super businessy lingo here, there's going to be some sort of KPI, key performance indicator, that you're targeting. Um, and you'll know it's good data if you increase or decrease that KPI, can, can, depending on what you want, right? Um, but that's obviously a huge amount of pressure because as a data scientist, that means that you have to like get new data and put it to use in a way that impacts, the, you know, customers in a positive way or, you know, whoever you're thinking of, um, which is like itself, that's not an easy task, right? Like even if the data were just laying around, it's hard to show that it has value. So, yeah. So I think it's challenging. You can see the nature of this challenge because I think the, you can imagine there's a process by which someone says, look, we're not going to spend the money to collect and analyze this data unless we believe that the collection of the data will lead to a intervention, essentially, that will then lead to an increase or decrease in this KPI, right? Yeah. Yep. Which is like, that's a pretty long chain of events to guarantee will happen. <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> you, like, you basically just described my job because okay. that's exactly what I work on yeah. is like collecting different types of data, um, you know, to understand clients better. And it's hard. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, some of the things that are really hard, like practically things that are harder, like, you know, um, dedicating resource, keeping, having everyone in the whole, you know, something like that, you're going to need cooperation from a bunch of different teams. Um, and you need to keep people like you need to have dedicated resources. So they have to prioritize that against some other things that they might want to do. And um, a lot of people work on it and you want to show something positive. And so, I mean, there's scenarios where that doesn't involve new data. Like that's kind of how like, quote unquote, data-driven companies work is that you do a bunch of work, you release some new feature, and then you test whether or not it was helpful. And if not, that all that work goes to waste, right? Right. Um, and then what's hard about this is that, like, when you do a bunch of work and you redesign a website, like, if you completely redesign a website, it's, like, fairly likely that you will see customers behave differently <laughs> or, like, you know, whoever it is that you're influencing. But... Um, yeah, when you're talking about collecting new data, modeling it correctly, having a positive, like increasing your understanding of something by collecting that data and then 
creating an experience that the client sees that uses that data. Like, it's, yeah, it's a, you either have to have it as like a strategic initiative, like just like, hey, we're just going to do this and believe that we'll hit gold eventually. Um, or yeah, you just have to really explore things ahead of time and be fairly confident that it's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I think just to, I mean, I, just to be fair, I, I think in some, that's kind of what we do in, well, at least in health sciences too. Like we hope that we can collect data uh, on some phenomenon and then, and then develop some sort of intervention to improve people's health, right? Like the, in, the KPI there is like health, <laughs> generally speaking, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, right. and of course that doesn't always work. In fact, it doesn't work most of the time. But I think the difference is that in science, I feel like there's an understanding that like we're going to be looking at all these different things and uh, and a lot of them are not going to work, but the things that do work are really going to like improve people's like well-being and health, right? Um, and so it's worth doing this exploration. It's worth having this massive National Institutes of Health and, you know, to fund all this because there's, there's a generic understanding of that's kind of how science works. So the, I think people are losing that understanding over time. Um, right, whereas right, whereas yeah. I feel like in business, it's kind of like we're not here to do research. We're here to make money, you know, or I mean, I don't mean to be so crass about it, but, you know, it's like we're not, yeah, or, yeah. you know, that's a, it's a different mission, you know, and I think and there may, I can understand. I could imagine there's a situation where people are saying, like, you can't just make things happen. Right. We have to actually like, you know, you know, collect data and learn about these things. Right. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, that's where I think the leadership of a company plays a huge role. I mean, you know, like what, how many years was Amazon not profitable? Um, Because Jeff Bezos, his name is Jeff, right? Yeah. Jeff Bezos. Like he believed that like once, like we need people dependent on the service and I don't care how long we're burning through capital in order to make that happen. Um, So there was like a faith, (laughs) a faith in like, something right that like there there is strategy involved in even a decision like that that has nothing to do with whether or not you're modeling people correctly um and so i guess i kind of put this in the same category where it's like you you, there is some principle that you're adhering to like or not principle there's like a theory that there's a leap of faith in terms of like collecting data will eventually make something better, like make our product better or whatever, you know, the, my boss used to be a Pandora. So kind of the same situation where it's like, okay, like collecting feedback on music. Like they had the kind of the whole music genome thing. They had the ratings, like, you know, it's like collecting feedback on music will allow us to do um, something cool. And so um, I don't know. So there, there has to be, some level of like a leap of faith or intuition about a problem. Um, and then, yeah, like a strategic decision to invest in it, even when you don't have like immediate ROI. Um, right. Yeah. And like, and like, um, I feel like there's scenarios where it just like didn't really work out. I'm trying to think of scenarios where people like tried to collect a bunch of data and then like nothing really came of it. Um, which I hate to I hate to throw them under the bus, but I feel like Fitbit is like an example of that, or like step counters in general. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's not much correlation between steps and health health outcomes, right? Um, I I don't know. I, I I'm not familiar with that. So yeah, I think this is also like a Sean Taylor like rant. <laughs> <laughs> 
we'll have to, we'll have to dig that out of the archives. <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, it was like, it, it was something along the lines of, um, I think he talks about it in talks, um, about this very principle of like, you know, what, why do people count steps? Because it's easy to do, not because it actually right. is helpful. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, I feel like there's probably many, many examples of companies that took a leap of faith on a hunch that data about something would create a good product. And then that didn't work out. <laughs> right. <laughs> my, my last thought on this topic is, um, you know, I think there's an interesting question of kind of where does data science belong, I think, in an organization. And I think most companies have some sort of research and development going on. And I think uh, research, and there's an understanding that not all research and development is going to turn into some sort of blockbuster product, right? Um, and a lot of it is not going to work out. And that's just the cost that you eat for doing new things, right? Um, and I think, I don't feel like, I don't feel like many companies consider data science to be kind of like the R&D type of part of the company uh yeah perhaps something, not. perhaps something closer to the kind of the operational part of the company in which case there's a greater demand for i think for results so to, you know quote unquote yeah um, yeah i think i mean this is a huge tension in most data science departments is exactly that trade-off it's like yeah i mean it's like are we doing r d or are we part of the operations you know um and uh it's probably it's probably both right you know but i think it's and i think that's the challenge right so um, it definitely is. And it's, you know, I think it's, I, I was talking to someone, I can't remember who, who was essentially like, yeah, most R and D groups kind of go by the wayside eventually. <laughs> like either they're so removed that they're doing R and D in a way that's not really applicable to the business. Um, or they're doing R and D and then they end up clashing with the people who are doing the applied work. Like, keeping the models running because those people have their own ideas about what to do. And so it's like, those are tenuous relationships. And so there's, there's not a lot of scenarios where it's successful. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's the caveat there, but no, I think it's, it's totally, it's, it's true. And I think that there's probably a lot of companies deal with this in really different ways. I mean, you know, it's like who comes up with new ideas for things that we do? Like, you know, who comes up with the idea? I mean, the Facebook newsfeed did come from their essentially like R&D department, data science R&D department. Um, but some other things like, you know, who decides what the next iteration of Twitter looks like or who decides what, you know, like decisions in any sort of technology consumer facing technology like i don't think there's any principle about who that should come from and i think it varies widely from company to company right yeah. um and i'm sure there's individual data scientists who play a huge role in that in certain companies um i don't think there's a lot of companies that are like yes all of our ideas come from data scientists <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> Even if that, you know, should be how it goes or, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to ask of people. Like, you know, I'm working in fashion, like how many data scientists do you know who are like also like really into the latest trend on Pinterest of people uploading, you right. know, <laughs> outfit of the day, you know, it's like, right, right. it's not a usual combo. So you need multiple people attacking the problem. So, 
All right. I don't even remember. That was a very long response. I know. Response Did we question. answer this guy's question I, about I surveys? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Do you want to briefly talk about this Strava data release? I'll make this our last topic. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, no, I don't know how yeah, to pronounce big, it. It's either Strava or Strava. I'm going to call it I Strava. think it's Strava. Strava. Okay. So um, just a quick summary. So this company, this is a little old news now, but uh, um, this company released its uh, data heat map, heat map, I think. So anyway, they make a, I think they make a device that is kind of like a Fitbit type of thing and it tracks your kind of. I don't even think it's, I'm not even sure if it's a device. It might just be an app for your oh, phone. Oh, for like your phone and then you carry, yeah, okay. Yeah, and then the idea yeah. is that you can track your kind of workouts and runs and things like that. Uh, and Yeah, it's like a, a social network for run paths right but the idea is that you there is something that you have to carry with you because it has like gps coordinates of kind of where you are right so either yeah, i'm seeing yeah. i'm assuming that's your phone or whatever um yeah yeah like you carry your phone with you on your run and then it tracks what your run looked like and usually there's usually a social component where you're like sharing that with friends and like hey i just want to jog around Golden right. Gate park or and i think they have like leaderboards and stuff like that right and i think mm-hmm. um and so yeah uh, they released, I guess they've done this before, but they released their um, uh, heat map of kind of like where people, where and how often people are running. And um, I guess apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently many people in the military use this app. Um, and apparently their data, their global heat map kind of showed a lot of places in like in war zones or essentially where there were like Americans, uh, I think Americans, um, you know, jogging around the, the border of their, you know, base and things like that uh and so potentially revealing you know classified information or whatever in terms of where these bases are so um anyway and i I think so that's that i think the interesting thing to me was the response (laughs) that strava had to this kind of so some graduate student i think i think in australia i think figured this out um, or kind of look through the data and kind of figure this out, and I think and publish like a blog post or something. And there, and the company's response is basically like, <laughs> if you need some more information about our private, you know, your privacy settings, like go to this web page, basically. Yeah, uh, right. Like, <laughs> why were you all uploading your runs around a top secret military right. place? Now, <laughs> the, and I, let me just—I t- just want to tell one story, and then I want to get your thoughts on this because, like, what this immediately reminded me of was there—I don't remember when the iPhone four came out. There was this issue where, like, if because the antenna was on the outside of the phone, if you held it in a way, in a certain way, it would drop the call. Um, and so it was called Antenna Gate. It was like a huge scandal. And um, and someone famously emailed Steve Jobs saying, like, "Hey, you know, if I hold my phone in this particular manner, it like drops the call." And his response was basically, "Don't hold it that way." Yeah. <laughs> and it became it, it became it, amongst like Apple people. It was the famous like, "You're holding it wrong," you know, case. Yeah. Um, it's like he's like, "How did you get this email?" Right. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, I mean, there's lots of great stories about Steve Jobs actually replying to people. But anyway, um, yeah. But I felt like that was the response of the company was basically like, "You're holding it wrong. Like, you're, you're, if you don't want people to see your data, don't release your data, right?" Um, mm-hmm. Which I, right. which you know, is a totally rational response. But on the other hand, I feel like the comp- the whole one of the the whole one of the kind of reasons for being for the company is that it's like a social network. You're sharing data with your friends and whatever, and like you're. And so, like, the, the app kind of doesn't make sense if you're not sharing the data, right? Right, yeah. It's kind of, and yeah, it's like, it's it's a little bit short-sighted in that probably the result of this whole thing is that 
across the military, they're like, don't use Strava. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is kind of a huge number of people who like jog on a regular basis. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly a bunch of users since they were all like uploading their data reliably. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess like, it's funny. It's one of those things where it's like open data is the best. And like, I, yeah, I don't know how I feel about it because it's like worrisome for the safety of those people that their location was published. Right. But then, yeah, I mean, I would assume so. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know, obviously. I and, mean, from and, my watchings of Homeland, um, <laughs> and we're back. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> seems very dangerous. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I mean, I don't think any, I, I think it's from a legal point. I don't think anything wrong was done, right? From like, I don't think illegal was done. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, but uh, yeah, it, it does raise a number of, it, it falls into this kind of like, I think, I think when it comes to data science in general, there's a lot of these gray areas that we haven't kind of thought through, I think, in terms of like frameworks for kind of like either, either ethical or regulatory kinds of issues. Um, and I think this is just one of those things. Um, yeah, it's sort of interesting because I think a lot of tech companies did have to face this with the whole um, like Snowden revelations and the whole backdoor. I, I feel like every, the major tech companies had like this huge um, thing on their hands to figure out how they wanted to relate to the government and what sort of access they were giving and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but that certainly hasn't come up in the data world. This might be one of the first forays into that arena. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, what am I saying? Like data, data about people generally, like, you know, like when, when you're talking about the, you know, I, I don't even remember the terms for this stuff, but we were talking about like, usually what the government wants from these tech companies is the quote unquote data on a user. But by that, they just mean like the information in their like production database, not like, like, Oh, can you send me every measurement of their jog last weekend? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, no, that, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting question that I have no idea how to answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I still, I do, I feel like the only interesting thought I have on it is that I do think it was short sighted of Strava not to have, I mean, I guess they just needed to consider carefully what they wanted their relationship with the military to look like. Um, and maybe they did know that they were going to have an essentially contentious one by doing this, but that, I don't know, that seems, that seems short-sighted just in terms of the fact that so many people in the military probably use their app. So yeah. And they must know that, right? I mean, they have to know that. Um, yeah. So I guess my, I, yeah, I want, you're right. They probably knew that. Yeah. Uh, one question, I guess I'm not entirely sure why they released all this data. I mean, I think it's like, I'm not sure what their rationale, uh, was except perhaps as like a marketing kind of like, look at, you know, look at how much stuff we have and whatever. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, um, it's like, well, what is it? Netflix. I mean, I think we've talked about this many times before, but they had to pull the plug on the second Netflix challenge right, because right, right. of, privacy of personally identifiable information type concerns, which I'm sure had to do with like their stock price somehow. <laughs> like there's like legal concerns. So it's yeah, not like they could go forward. Yeah. yeah. So, um... um, although it's kind of shocking, like surely there's PII embedded in this running data. 
Oh yeah, I know. I think there were a couple of reports because, like, there you could see like the pads of people taking like from their houses and things like that. You know, it was like it was pretty detailed in terms of the down of the street level. So um, it's I don't think it would have taken much uh, work to identify, especially in more thinly populated areas, to figure out who people were. So um, yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, just because you're signing up for a running app that maybe you've put every single security setting on and you you're only sharing with like your significant other or something. And then all of a sudden you're you're like remote secluded cabin. You're like a star. <laughs> and now you're like remote secluded cabins like people know you run every day. Right. And that you live in the parks or something. And now everyone knows where that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these are like these are like this is how the mind of a security person works they think of like the most extreme bizarre but like like etsy transitioned to https when i was there and i remember one of my friends who was on the security team describing like the types of privacy concerns that might happen with this like exploitable problem <laughs> of like having search on http and it was like, there was some like interesting, you know, it was like, what if you're like searching for free Tibet stuff in like certain countries or, you know, it's like, it was stuff where we're like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. You thought of like the scenario where this really wouldn't be okay. Right. But, yeah. Well, that's kind of their job, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's their job. Exactly. So, um, anyway, I don't know. I have no opinions on this. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. What is your opinion? No, I, I, I don't really have any opinion. I just thought the company's response was actually was the most interesting part for me. So yeah, yeah, it's kind of yeah. I don't know why it kind of rubs me. Even though, even though I, it kind of rubs me the wrong way, and I don't know why it is. But I think user friendliness and privacy, like it, kind of assumes that people know what they're getting into. And this all happened with Facebook, you know, like. They they had to go through massive efforts to make their privacy way more understandable. I think some of that might have even been like court sanctioned. I don't know. Yeah, but I know I agree. There is like a I I don't know if it's an assumption that the user knows what they're doing or it's a exploitation of the fact that the user doesn't. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, but, yeah, um, and like I just I guess I empathize with like a soldier who didn't realize it and then feels like their life is threatened as a result you know that's like pretty extreme bad like scenario for not reading like the privacy clause carefully yeah exactly yeah yeah. anyway all right um i have one bit of free advertising uh i know we we haven't done this segment in a while but this one's good so uh i've been listening to the podcast the storytelling with data podcast with cole naflick and um, she has started this. It's only four episodes in. Um, but the most recent episode that she did was called It Depends. Um, and it was absolutely fantastic. It was like, it was like, it was a perfect episode if you're like a statistician or a data analyst. And because as you might imagine, like the answer to every question is always it depends. <laughs> yeah. <Right? laughs> That's great. Wait, who is the person who's hosting it? It's Cole Naflick. I think it's, yeah. Okay. And she she writes she wrote a book called Storytelling with Data, which is very popular, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think she used to work at Google, uh, and now she's kind of on her own. She has the book. She has she does a lot of like workshops, um, and and the podcast is called Storytelling with Data. So um, 
and she talks a lot about visualization primarily i think um yeah but other things too interesting so So she's kind of taking like a journalism in data science like a journalism-esque approach i I wouldn't say it's really heavy on journalism i think it's more it's more kind of data analysis and communication um oh cool and uh so and there's there's a large focus on kind of like how to visually present data um Mm -hmm. but um but she talks a lot about the one of the things i appreciate is that she talks a lot about the kind of process of of kind of thinking through of kind of like the, the, the whole process of analyzing data from start to finish. Um, mm-hmm. And also she talks a lot about, you know, kind of like how you, how you, how you do things, you know, depending on what kind of audience you're delivering it to, which I think is something that we don't talk about a lot in data analysis and like the, that what right. you do and how you do it depends a lot on who you're delivering, who's going to be receiving it at the other end. Um, totally. And so, uh, and so there's a lot of discussion of that. So I, I wish I appreciate it. Uh, so anyway, this the episode four is the one I'm referring to, but I think the, the whole podcast is pretty good. So, yeah, great. No, that's great. I mean, I feel like we talked about this a great deal, obviously, and it's sort of in a way we always want to kick down, kick the can down the road of like, oh, it's an art. <laughs> and like, we've talked a lot about what how it can't be. Um, it's like this creative process that can't kind of be condensed down to like principles and cookbookery and whatever and so seems like she's taking a stab at that like teaching people how to do art part (laughs) 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 which is good all right anything else i think that's it for me no free advertising this week okay all right episode finished